Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community General Osteopathic, and West Shore Hospitals. More information on our locations is available at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Last month, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court made a decision that could have significant implications for injured workers, employers, and insurance companies. Under a 1996 law, insurance companies can require injured workers to be examined by a doctor after receiving workers' compensation for a period of two years. It's called an Impairment Rating Evaluation, or IRE. The doctor could use or would use guidelines from the American Medical Association to determine whether the worker's injury had improved. Payments could be reduced if the injury fell under a certain threshold. The court ruled the law violated Pennsylvania's Constitution because it essentially relied on the AMA guidelines. This could have a major impact on a lot of people, so we'll try to sort it out today. Joining us in the studio is Drew Gannon, a certified workers' compensation specialist with KBG Injury Law with offices in York, Lancaster, and Gettysburg. Mr. Gannon, welcome to the program. Thank you. Also joining us on the phone is Beth Melito, Senior Executive Counsel with the National Federation of Independent Business Legal Center. Ms. Melito, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. We understand that uh, workers' compensation is probably not one of the topics that uh, you discuss around uh, the, 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 the dinner table unless you are an injured worker, an employer, a lawyer, or maybe an insurance company, but uh, this could have implications for taxpayers in Pennsylvania. 1-800-729-7532. All right, so Drew Gannon, let me start with you. One person called this ruling monumental. Why is this so significant? Well, the decision basically strikes a section of the act that's been in place for 21 years. And to put it in historical perspective, in 1996, the Ridge administration pushed through a series of reforms to the act designed to reduce costs to businesses and insurance carriers, and it was largely effective. Uh, One of those provisions was the IRE provision, which capped or can cap an employer's obligation to a claimant, injured worker, after 10 years of benefits, in essence. And we've always felt that it was an unfair addition to the act because it conflated Pennsylvania's traditional disability state with other states which are impairment based let me give you an example Yeah, when you say conflated give, give me a little more uh, sure. information there sure um, in Pennsylvania somebody is deemed disabled if they are unable to perform their occupation now in the case we're talking about Prots, she was a hall monitor with a knee injury and she was unable to do her job due to the severity of her knee injury and therefore she was disabled you or I with that same injury would not be disabled from performing our job because it's normally a sit-down position. So Pennsylvania with its disability status then added this impairment language in 1996 which said well regardless of how your injury affects you personally and your ability to do the job we're going to try and put a cap on your benefits based upon this generic formula from the AMA which gives us what your impairment level is. So in Ms. Protz's case, they said, regardless of how this affects your ability to work, you have a 10% impairment, and therefore your benefits are going to end after 10 years. Uh, That's Maryland and New Jersey, for instance, are impairment states where once you've reached maximum medical improvement, you would then be paid a certain amount based upon the rating you were given. So in essence, the, the legislature was trying to combine a hybrid of the two different types of states, and it, it was negatively impacting injured workers across the state. All right. So now that was a good explanation of the, the background, but why is this such a significant uh, ruling by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court? Well, now 
disability in Pennsylvania will be based on how your injury affects the individual person going forward as opposed to relying upon the AMA guidelines. Uh, the, the court basically ruled that the legislature could not delegate responsibility for making laws to an outside private entity which is not responsible to the public. The AMA was free to revise or change its guides at any time and in fact over the past couple decades they've had two or three revisions which have altered the calculation of the impairments and, and there's no input from the public uh, to challenge any of those guidelines. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Beth Melito, let me turn to you and uh, get this from an employer's point of view, a business person's point of view, uh, the National Federation of Independent Business here with the Legal Center. So, w from an employer's point of view, why is this ruling important? Um, well, and I would agree that it is monumental, um, and from the employer's perspective, it's very troubling. Um, the ruling puts employers in the, you know, the difficult position of being unable to determine if an employee is permanently or just partially impaired and whether or not their benefits should continue and potentially continue indefinitely. As uh, Drew, I think, aptly pointed out, too, those reforms in 1996 were very important and came out came about as a result of a lot of studies done um, in part by the state's Department of Commerce, too, which compared Pennsylvania to competing states in the areas there and found that, you know, quick comparison with other states in the Northeast, um, Pennsylvania's workers' comp costs were at the top, um, and they were deterring businesses, um, small and large, from setting up shop in the Commonwealth because of the workers' comp. So this reform came about in 1996, and this impairment rating evaluation was a very important component of the reforms in 1996 um, and provided this tool to employers and also workers' comp carriers, too, to cap exposure on long-term workers' compensation claims. Um, this impairment rating, you know, once a claimant had received 104 weeks of total disability benefits and had reached a maximum medical improvement, the employer did have the option then to request and, you know, the evaluation. Um, a doctor was assigned, and based on these AMA guidelines, which are used by, you know, the majority of states now, um, the doctor could determine that, hey, you know, gee, the claimant's injury is less than 50%, um, and there's, you know, reason to kind of cap the benefits there, which in turn, you know, helps bring down the workers' compensation insurance costs. So to throw out this entire section of the act is very problematic, and, you know, create a lot of legal havoc, too. Okay, well, we're going to talk about uh, all those things, but you both are lawyers, and I'm not telling you anything when I say the law is the law, and when the Pennsylvania Supreme Court rules that uh, the, you know, under this law that there was too much reliance on the American Medical Association, and th that basically they usurped, I don't think that was a word that the court used, but they, uh, you know, delegated, uh, the, the General Assembly delegated responsibility to the American uh, Medical Association, that the court made that ruling. So, you know, uh, Beth, let me let me turn to you first. Uh, you know, it may be troubling, and as you said, it may create havoc, but they said this is the law and that uh, Pennsylvania was not abiding by its own constitution. Well, the Constitution does permit the General Assembly in some instances to assign authority in its discretion. Um, to other you know, groups, to, right. To yeah. other groups, exactly, right. exactly. Um, and there are some limitations on that, but they are permitted to, you know, look to outside experts, if you will, to come up with, you know, standards or guidelines, if you will. So this is done in other instances, too. So, you know, and I pointed out, too, that I think over 30 states rely on one of the versions of the AMA guidelines. So it's not like Pennsylvania was an outlier on this um, thing. Um, yes, there are other avenues of relief available to an employer and insurance company too but those are you know you know requ you know looking for other you know kind of back to work light duty those sort of things or a settlement too but sometimes you know depending on the claimant sometimes depending on the claimant's attorney those can be more costly and more expensive so this was kind of you know if you will like a third way or another way if you will to you know come about to you know hey we think this person has reached maximum medical improvement it's 
less than 50%, you know, how can we some way cap the costs or work to get this individual back to work? Because ultimately, that's what small businesses really, really are looking for is, you know, they've got limited staff, um, and it's difficult when they have an employee that goes out on temporary disability. And how long is this going to be? And, you know, how can we get them back to work? Because ultimately, I feel like that should be the goal for, you know, on both sides, if you will. All right. I want to talk about, uh, you, you said that the, this could create havoc for employers. In what way? Well, right now, you know, depending on where a claimant is in the process, um, you know, I said legal havoc, I think, you know, you know, is this decision going to be retroactive? Are we going to be reopening cases? Yeah, yeah, as Drew yeah. said, this was, you know, 21 years now, this has been on the book. So this is a pretty, you know, could be a pretty big deal. Or are cases that have run, you know, the 500 weeks, are those those claimants, you know, kind of out of luck under the, I don't, I don't want to throw another legal term in there, but, you know, race judicata, can we not retry them? They've run their course. Um, if it impairment rating evaluation has just been completed, you know, where do we stand then? In those instances, the employer, you know, withdraws the petition. Um, So there's a lot of uncertainty um, as to how this is going to play out and how the courts um, are going to apply the Supreme Court ruling. Because ultimately, Scott, as you said, that is the law. So, you know, until the, you know, maybe General Assembly acts, um, you know, how are the courts going to react to what the Supreme Court has said is the law? Drew, you said this is good for workers. Why? Well, it it removes that artificial barrier against future benefits. And to give your listeners a a perspective of what that 50% threshold is. That was one of my questions is how that is determined. Right. In in 20 years, I've had two clients that have exceeded that. One was paralyzed. The other was in a horrific motorcycle accident. To give you an idea of uh, the average uh, impairment rating is between 7 and 10%. If you have your right leg amputated at the hip, that's a 40% impairment, okay? So to get over that 50% threshold is very difficult, and it limits individuals who cannot go back to work. I mean, think of a construction worker, for instance, who may have a high school education and has a horrific injury, but yet is under that 50% threshold. They're going to be out of benefits within 10 years. If they're 26, that means at age 36 or 38, after that two-year waiting period, they're done. And workers' comp carriers have no obligation in Pennsylvania to retrain or provide other work or education to an injured worker. So by eliminating this cap, at least there's a potential, if no other remedies are provided, that the injured worker can can continue to receive the benefits they deserve. But, and, and as Beth pointed out, uh, and the court, uh, you know, looked at this as well, that there are dozens of other states that are using these same guidelines. How's Pennsylvania any different? Well, each state is very different. Uh, they use a combination of guides. They use only one edition. They don't use them at all. They use them for different reasons. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Maryland and New Jersey are more impairment states. And my understanding is that you would receive a lump sum payment from in those states following your rating. Pennsylvania doesn't use the impairment guides for that purpose to come up with a a payment to you or compensation in a lump sum. It's also important to note that this 500-week cap that was put into place does not mean that somebody's going to keep receiving benefits for 500 weeks or almost 10 years. It's just that if the carrier makes no other attempt to get the injured worker back to work or finds other work elsewhere, that at the end, those benefits would have stopped. We're going to talk more about uh, workers' comp and this ruling from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org spine. 
We're talking about a Supreme Court ruling, Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling made last month, which could have a significant impact here in Pennsylvania. Our guest today, Beth Melito, Senior Executive Counsel with the National Federation of Independent Business Legal Center, and Drew Gannon, a certified workers' compensation specialist with KBG Injury Law, has offices in York, Lancaster, and Gettysburg. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, that is 1-800-729-7532. You know, one of the questions, um, Beth Melito, that um, many of our listeners may have is, okay, how does this impact me? If I don't suffer an injury or haven't had an injury in the past, uh, I'm not an employer, I'm not uh, with an insurance company, I'm not with a law firm. So with Pennsylvanians out there listening, what impact could this ruling have? Well, I think for employees out there, you know, I don't want anyone to think that this, this, this ruling has thrown out the entire Workers' Comp Act. It was, you know, one provision in it. One provision in it, and I did, you know, I said out the outset too, it provided an important tool for employers to provide some certainty with capping exposure on long term workers' compensation claims. Um, but, you know, for a worker who is injured, um, I mean, there's certainly still relief that will be available there. I think going forward, you know, there's going to be, certainly going to be pressure on the General Assembly and the legislature to work to create standards that fit within kind of the parameters of what the Supreme Court has laid out to establish guidelines. Um, and, you know... Okay, I mean, can I interrupt for just one second? Yeah, sure. What are those parameters? Because on the surface, this appears that the court threw this out, and there really are not a whole lot of guidelines to go by. In fact, one of the things that uh, I've observed is it appears that there's a lot of confusion that many people are asking, okay, where do we go from here? Well, certainly the impairment rating evaluation, that portion is not going to happen. As far as other guidelines, Drew mentioned, too, that other states, um, some rely in part on the AMA guidelines, and may the legislature may specify, you know, you're going to use the sixth edition, you're going to use the fifth edition, you're going, they are updated, you know, every few years, you're going to use the fourth edition. So specify in the statute exactly what you know, should, physicians should be using. Um, some states also include other sort of factors, such as, you know, the physician, um, the amount of time, the age of the claimants, those sort of things. So there are other parameters or guidelines that can be incorporated that physicians would use. Um, so states do use a variety of approaches in determining, you know, impairment ratings. Um, not all, as Drew said, rely strictly on the AMA guidelines. So, so, so you're ways. saying that the court ruling has not made this a confusing situation, that there still are some guidelines there? Well, no, no, no. The court didn't specify what 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 the state should do. It just said, you know, what you're doing now doesn't work. Um, so what you're doing now doesn't work. Um, you know, it was an unconstitutional delegation, you know, of authority to just rely on this private outside entity. But the court did not in any way say, here's what you should do. Right. Um, and that would be enacting legislation, which is not a, a, a court's exactly, job. Exactly, uh, but th exactly. that's what I was getting at, is that you as lawyers and, and Drew as someone representing an injured worker, what is unknown to you? as we go forward after this after after this ruling well the first thing is that there are going to be no future IREs occurring the bureau made that very clear shortly after the ruling by declaring that they would not designate any future impairment rating appointments uh, the question you raised earlier of uh, retroactivity of existing All right, cases, this is a big this is a big part of this and and that's a big unknown right now because we can only estimate that there are thousands of injured workers out there that have undergone the IRE process and whose clock, that 500-week clock, so to speak, is ticking. We don't know um, how the courts are going to address reinstating their benefits from partial to total. Uh, there's a variety of classes of individuals. Some have already expired. They've already used up their 500 weeks. Uh, but they're still within three years from when they were last paid. So under the law, they may be entitled to a reinstatement. Some people have given the threat of reducing benefits, have settled their cases. 
and they are likely out of luck and won't be able to reopen their cases. There are individuals who are nearing the end of the 500-week period. Are they going to now be able to reinstate their benefits? Uh, those are questions that the court will likely have to address, and I know there are some cases in the pipeline already where they'll have to clarify exactly what happens to all of these individuals. This ruling came down June 20th. Have you been contacted, not, maybe not you personally, but the law firm, have you been contacted by clients saying, hey, I heard about this ruling, am I eligible to go back and maybe uh, recoup some money? Well, what we did with our existing clients, we've combed through all of our cases and identified individuals that have been affected. And I have already filed a reinstatement petition in one case to clarify that person's status. Uh, I don't know of us being contacted by new clients with questions in this regard. And that's one of the concerns we have. I don't think the Bureau is reaching out to these unrepresented claimants, many of whom have been receiving benefits without issue and may have never consulted an attorney. So those individuals may not even know about this decision or how it impacts or could impact their, their benefits. One of the reasons we wanted to do the show today. So, Beth, from an employer's point of view, though, how much of a concern is it about this retroactivity part? I think it's probably the biggest concern right now from my perspective. And again, I, you know, I am an attorney, but um, I think it's going to create a lot of litigation in both the short and potentially long term, too, depending on, you know, whether the General Assembly comes through with a fix to kind of clarify or, you know, set standards um, that meet the Supreme Court muster. But um, I think a lot of employees out there, once they get word of, you know, the decision, um, who were found to be, you know, less than 50%, you know, disabled, are now likely to head to the courthouse and try to seek reinstatement of the full disability benefits. And that's a concern. That's certainly a concern for employers. um, And I'm assuming for, you know, the carriers too out there, because again, it's all about, you know, putting some kind of cap on the, the costs there. And, you know, not just the benefit cost either, but one of the costs associated with workers' comp is the litigation and the administration of claims, too. So it's a big concern for employers. Let's take a phone call from Alex in Harrisburg. Alex, you're on the air. Oh, thanks for uh, thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Um, just so I understand correctly, so you have a Supreme Court case uh, decision where, you know, th- they're not saying there's any problem with evaluating injured workers after two years. They're not saying there's any problem with, you know, capping benefits after 10 years. Uh, There's a certain threshold that's not reached. They're only saying that the way the law was set up and and referring to guidelines that can change is is a problem. So I guess my question is, I mean, this This law has been around for 20-some years, you know, through multiple administrations and multiple legislatures. I mean, it's not something you hear about a lot. I understand that some attorneys might might not love the process, but um, all of a sudden you have a a court case based on sort of a technicality, and it just sounds like uh, one side is trying to, you know, take this as an opportunity to um, kind of throw out the whole thing. So why, why can't this just be kind of kind of this technicality fixed. Um, thanks know, again for taking it, my call. And Alex, I have to admit, I was wondering how long it would take before the word technicality came up, but uh, thank you very much for, for your call. So, uh, Beth Melita, let me start with you, and I'll ask Drew the same question. Have you respond to what uh, uh, Alex had to say? Well, I think that, you know, I'm not a lobbyist, and I don't, you know, I'm not going to be there in Harrisburg lobbying for any change there. But I think that there are other ways that the legislature, the General Assembly, can go about setting guidelines without falling into running a, running afoul of, you know, what the, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has referred to as this non-delegation. Um, and, you know, as I said before, other states um, do set guidelines, sometimes you know, AMA guidelines in consultation or in combination with um, other, you know, elements, too, that they consider, such as age, other parameters that are set up in the statute, um, more specifically laid out in the statute. So, you know, if that's the, the technicality, if you will, that you're talking about, then that can be, you know, I would argue that can be done by the General Assembly. Mm-hmm. So, Drew, what about the, you know, as uh, Alex pointed out, he said he looked at it as a technicality. Well, I, I obviously have a different perspective. I, it's a constitutional issue, not, not a technicality. 
Uh, to his point about the, the length of time this law has been in existence, uh, if we look at the, the Protz case, uh, she was injured in 2007, and it took 10 years to get to this point. Uh, the impairment rating evaluation occurred in 2011. The judge granted her modification. It was then appealed to the appeal board and then to the Commonwealth Court and then to the Supreme Court. So it, it worked its way through the system. Uh, I, I think there were other cases along the way that could have as well gone up, so to speak, to the Supreme Court, but many cases settle or are resolved in other means, and, and therefore there's no issue to present to the Supreme Court. So that's why it took so long to get to this point. Actually, an argument could be made that anything ruled unconstitutional is a technicality. I mean, but that's a big technicality. It's a, yes, it would be a big one. <laughs> if uh, the word unconstitutional, whether it's uh, pertaining to Pennsylvania or the U.S. Constitution, obviously uh, that is a big deal, and uh, technicality seems to understate that uh, somewhat. But uh, I did think that, that that word would come up. All right, so l again, I want to get back to how individuals could be impacted by this. Uh, Beth, let me ask you about something had, that has been predicted, and that is that insurance premiums will rise for employers. Will that happen? Um, I think it absolutely will. Um, you know, I mentioned before there are other ways for insurance companies to cap benefits, you know, providing evidence that the person can perform duties or offering a settlement. But those can be more difficult and take longer and more costly and ultimately require more litigation and more administrative costs, and those are big costs. Um, and, you know, the small business that I represent there, they just want to know, you know, can the employee work? Am I going to have to keep paying this claim indefinitely? Um, is the employee's claim, are they getting more for their claim now than they were making when they worked for me? Um, they've been out so long, when they, will, will, you know, all these unanswered questions, too. And that's all cost and time for the employer, for the business owner. Um, and I think ultimately it is going, you're going to see um, higher insurance premiums for workers' comp. And again, that's what brought about this reform in 1996. Um, and it was successful, too. So if those premiums rise... And I think this is an obvious question, but uh, maybe I should ask by how much, or and I know that's uh, kind of hard to predict, but uh, will those costs be passed on to customers? It will be passed on to the employers, most definitely, yes. Um, and, you know, you want Pennsylvania to be an attractive place for companies to locate. And higher workers' compensation costs are not going to create a business-friendly climate. I, I guess what I meant by that is if uh, an employer, a business, uh, you know, if their, their cost goes up for insurance, whether those costs will be passed on to the customers oh, they deal with. Yes, to the customer, yes. I mean, those are, you know, it's the cost of doing business. But I will say for, you know, for smaller businesses, um, I hear this from our members time and again, to stay competitive, they'll do all they can to, you know, eat the cost, absorb the cost themselves to, you know, stay competitive. Um, but there does come a point where sometimes, yes, that has to be, you know, passed along, whether it's a service, a retail, a restaurant, whatever. I mean, they all, if you have an employee, you have workers' compensation costs, right? Um, and, you know, there's, there's not a lot you can do to, there's something, some things you can do, but not a lot you can do ultimately to control the cost because you have to pay for workers' compensation coverage. Drew, obviously, this is not uh, your job, uh, attracting businesses to Pennsylvania or, uh, you know, controlling the cost of insurance. But do you see that as well, that that is something that may come out of this? Uh, it may, but I, I think those concerns are overstated at this point, because if you look traditionally over the past 20 years, while medical costs have been rising, as you would expect with the, the increases in uh, treatment, the indemnity payments over the past 20 years have bottomed out. I mean, they've flatlined. There's been no increase, even though wages have been increasing every year. The in total indemnity paid out uh, by carriers over the years has remained uh, very constant. The, the impact of this decision will certainly make a difference to individuals, but the carriers still have a number of arrows in their quiver, so to speak, that they can use to uh, cap benefits. They can make uh, better efforts to return injured workers to the time of injury position, or they can 
uh, undertake vocational development and try and find work for these individuals elsewhere. Or they can negotiate settlements, uh, which has been uh, a big driver over the past 20 years as well. Those those factors have all played in and were part of the revisions that were made in 1996. Just for background purposes, when someone is receiving workers' compensation, do they get their full salary? No, they get generally two-thirds. There's a formula, but it's usually um, designed to represent your take-home pay, uh, tax-free. You're never better off on workers' comp, as I tell people. Well, you see, that's just it. I mean, we've heard the horror stories of people who have faked injuries and that kind of thing. Um, but there is there is motivation for people to want to get back to work so that they are earning their full salary. Not only that, but somebody who's been out for several years is not getting any increases in their rate of pay. You're capped at whatever your injured rate was. So if you're injured in 2005 and since that time would have had 10 years worth of uh, raises or increases, you don't get that. You're also not contributing to your retirement plan. You're losing seniority. You're likely to have lost your health insurance uh, because employers are not required to continue your health insurance after you've been out on workers' comp. So, you know, there always is a concern about uh, malingerers, so to speak, but it's, it's a small, small fraction of the actual claimant pool. Beth, do you think fraud is an issue? I do, I do, and that was one of the um, five principles, if you will, that brought about the reforms in '96. Was concern over, you know, the payment of benefits to workers who were not injured any any longer, that had recovered and were able to return to work, and quite frankly, getting two thirds of their salary for doing nothing, for some folks, may not seem like a bad proposition if you didn't like your job to begin with. Um, so I would say there is fraud, and I think that the reforms in '96, um, and including this impairment rating evaluation, are what has brought about um, the leveling out of the indemnity um, indemnity amounts paid out. Um, the reforms in '96 worked, um, and Pennsylvania has seen that. Um, and this, you know, was an important component: the impairment rating evaluation that is no longer there. Beth, will employers under this ruling, as a result of this ruling, I should say, be more likely to seek settlement with injured workers? Um, I think, in some instances, yes. Particularly where there is not going to be the ability for the business to offer some sort of light duty position, you know, where you can't necessarily negotiate a different job. And that's oftentimes the situation, Scott, in smaller businesses too, where you don't have, you know, a lot of positions or where you don't have the resources to just create a light duty position or the time necessarily to work with an occupational, you know, therapist or specialist and, you know, come up or create a new job position because you only have, you know, five employees, you only have five positions um, and they all all need to be, you know, hanging drywall or painting or whatever to, you know, be making money for the business. So in those situations, I think you're going to have to look towards, you know, doing a settlement, which, as I said before, can be more costly because of the litigation and the drawn-out administrative process. So from an attorney's point of view, uh, a workers' compensation specialist, Drew, uh, are you more apt to accept those settlements, or does this make a difference? Uh Anytime somebody's willing to talk settlement, it, it's a good thing. And it, settlements are often good for both employers and the injured workers because they can then move on with their lives. Um, I don't know that carriers will be that much more willing to talk now, but certainly will be willing to listen. Mm-hmm. We only have a few minutes left in this portion of the program, Beth. So how do you see this playing out? I mean, I, we've talked a lot about what the future looks like, and it seems like uh, there is some uncertainty here. So how do you see this playing out? Well, I think this is going to be a hot topic in the General Assembly um, come fall, um, and there'll be pressure on the General Assembly to come up with some sort of new guidelines or, you know, until the courts, if you will, clarify what's going to happen with the older cases. Um, I think there is going to be a lot of confusion and a lot of additional litigation, unfortunately, in the workers' comp arena. Drew, how do you think it plays out? Well, I would caution the General Assembly about taking any uh, further steps until we see whether there is truly any long-term impact from this decision. Uh, The costs are uh, evaluated every year by the Bureau, and until we have some true empirical data, uh, I think it would be rash for the General Assembly to try and put something else in place 
to try and fix a problem that, that may not exist. I want to change topics for, for just a moment. Uh, Drew, I was contacted by your law firm a few months ago. Um, actually, it was actually before uh, Donald Trump became president. Uh, the federal government said in December that it wanted a bigger role in workers' comp cases because when workers' comp runs out, injured workers often turn to Social Security or other taxpayer-funded programs. Do you know where that stands right now? Uh, I don't think there's been any change. There was a, a concern uh, because certain states were allowing employers to opt out of workers' compensation coverage and instill or uh, pass their own uh, rules and regulations and how they treated injured workers. The I think the, the federal government was basically sending a warning shot across the bow of states that you've got to get a control of your own system before they step in in order to try and, and fix things. Yeah, this was uh, workers' comp has been strictly a uh, state program for the most part, and I'm sure that uh, a lot of people didn't want to see the feds getting involved in that. And as I said, that was during the Obama administration. You've heard nothing uh, during uh, the Trump administration? No, nothing so far. Beth, how about you? I know I'm taking you completely off guard with this, but I don't know if you're familiar with this or not. I have not heard anything related to the workers' comp. Um, I mean, I think, you know, entitlement reform, which, you know, pertains to the Social Security, um, I think there's, there, there might, may be discussion, you know, um, about that. But I'm not familiar with, yeah, what you're, you're talking about or have heard anything about that. Okay. I want to thank you very much, both of you, for being with us today. Beth Melito, Senior Executive Counsel with National Federation of Independent Business Legal Center, and Drew Gannon, a Certified Workers' Compensation Specialist with KBG Injury Law with offices in York, Lancaster, and Gettysburg. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. For the second straight year, Pennsylvania has a budget without the governor's signature. A $32 billion spending plan was approved by the General Assembly 10 days ago without a definitive plan in place for the revenue to pay for it. Without Governor Wolf's signature, the spending bill became law automatically. WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief Katie Meyer joins us with the details. Katie, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Scott. All right. Now, this may be a little bit confusing, although uh, maybe not since it's happening uh, year after year. But uh, just explain what this means, that uh, the state has a spending plan but does not have the revenue in place to implement that plan. Sure. So, I mean, essentially, they have not passed any components of the revenue package yet. So as it stands, the $32 billion um, is not a balanced budget. There's no revenue there to back it up. That said, um, this whole debate over how to balance the budget really came down to $2 billion, $2.2 billion specifically. So the rest of the budget, most of the budget, the money is there. They just have to pass the code bills and send those to the governor um, and you know, get those in place. Now, um, the remaining $2 billion, that's you know, the tricky part. And most of that, the, you know, the assembly is sort of figured out that they're going to cover it by largely borrowing and doing various fund transfers. Um, so that takes care of between 1.5 and more likely 1.7 or $8 um, billion out of, again, the $2 billion hole. Uh, that leaves really um, just a couple hundred million dollars, between five and eight hundred million dollars that they're, that, that this standoff is really coming down to. And uh, they don't know how they're going to fill that, or all of it especially. Um, so the governor has asked for more recurring revenue, more money. He says, you know, we need to have a budget that has, uh, you know, more stable funds in it. Um, the assembly is saying we don't need as much, plus they don't want to raise taxes, and that is, you know, various smaller taxes is sort of what's been on the table from the governor recently. So um, that's sort of where we are. So right now we don't have a balanced budget, which is in violation of the Constitution, as far as I can tell, obviously they did this last year, the administration says they do have some legal language that leads them to believe this is fine, but um, I, I mean, I, they haven't pointed us to it. Well, th that was my next question. You know, we just yeah. spent a whole portion of our program talking about uh, uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling on, uh, you know, something that was ruled unconstitutional, Pennsylvania's Constitution. Pennsylvania's Constitution says that the state needs a balanced budget. Now, the governor has not signed this. 
So I don't know whether that has anything to do with it at all. You know, one of the big questions, though, Katie, is can the state spend money right now? I mean, we're in a new fiscal year, but we don't have a way to generate revenue in place. Right. And so, uh, you know, they don't there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of concern about the spending because you're right. We're not technically supposed to spend money unless we have a balanced budget. Um, but, you know, again, they're doing the code bills today. The General Assembly's back in. And um, what I've been hearing is that they think, you know, we'll be fine. We fill in, you know, that thirty two billion and, or the thirty billion of revenue that we already know where it's coming from and then figure out the rest figure out how to pass the rest. Because remember, I mean, we are coming off of a year in which we already had a billion and a half dollar uh, deficit. So we were already short quite um, a substantial portion of the money that we're short now. So this isn't like a, an, un, these aren't really uncharted waters for us. But uh, it, nevertheless, I think it's uh, an uncomfortable situation for the legislature to be in. Yes, you use the word standoff. And yeah. uh, that may surprise some people because who have been following this budget making process, because we've heard up until now that uh, there seems to be a lot of cooperation and that uh, the, no real big controversial issues with this. So is standoff the right word? Or I guess any time that the two sides disagree, it can be called a standoff. I yeah, guess what know, I'm looking reason, for, I guess what yeah, I'm looking for is comparison to other years. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, the reason I went with standoff, and you're right, I, I was kind of wondering if that was an appropriate word, but I think it is in this case because, you know, we've seen in the last, you know, 10 days of this, you know, <laughs> impasse, I suppose, um, that uh, there's been a lot of positive language on both sides. You know, they've been saying we're close to a consensus, we're getting there, we're getting there, and they're, they're still close. Again, it comes down to a couple hundred million dollars. But um, yesterday we sort of did see some, um, not defeated, but slightly more negative um, takes from leaders. Uh, Dave Reed, I think, did say basically negotiations had, you know, broken down. He uh, House Majority Leader. Yes, the House Majority Leader. Uh, He saw things go um, off the rails a little bit. Um, And really, again, it was about um, where to get that last couple hundred million dollars. So uh, another big question is about um, how sustainable this budget is. One of the Mm -hmm. criticisms of Pennsylvania budgets over the last few years is that, uh, you know, they've I, I hear the term and I was trying not to use it, but I'll use it anyway, that these budgets were done with smoke and mirrors and that they mm-hmm. borrowed here. They put some money there and that uh, they were not sustainable in the long term. I mean, yes, we have a, uh, a budget deficit for this year, but we we also have a structural budget deficit of $3 billion. Does this budget, does this do anything long-term, or are we, to use another cliche, kicking the can down the road? <laughs> you got both of the major I did. I did. I really did. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, um, that's the big question here. And so if we look at how we're going to be funding this budget again, as I said, $30 billion is, you know, revenue that's you know, already there. It's revenue that was taken care of. Um, the rest of it, it's tough, right? I mean, that's a $2 billion deficit, so they're going to fund most of that through borrowing. And that's something that a lot of people have been very, very hesitant to do in previous years. And so the fact that we came to that and that seemed like a, you know, a decision that everybody jumped onto, um, I think says something about how little, how few options there are for revenue in this state right now. So that'll be, and we've talked about this, but borrowing um, against revenue from a fund, and it's probably, it's almost definitely going to be the state's uh, tobacco settlement fund that gives us, you know, over, I think, $300 million every year. So they're going to borrow against that. And um, again, $1.5 billion or so. So that's the major component of this budget. Again, then there's also, you know, the fund transfers that are probably going to be in it as well. And then you look for, you know, recurring revenue, and we haven't had very much luck in settling on something. Um, The big component is probably a gaming bill, um, and that, again, like we tried to pass one last year, and it never got passed. So that was revenue that never came through. So I don't know. We're not, we haven't gotten to a consensus on that at this point. It it seems like we were close, but now we're not. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I can't say where we'll be in a year, but this is definitely uh, 
not the level of, again, recurring revenue that a lot of people, I think, were hoping for in this budget. And next year being an election year for the governor mm-hmm. and the entire legislature, at least the House side and half of the, the Senate, I don't know, it's 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 kind of doubtful if, if you go by tradition whether anything big would come out of that as far as a, uh, uh, you know, looking long term down the road. I want to talk about gambling expansion because, you know, last week we heard that uh, this was what was holding up an agreement. And there seems to be an agreement from what you're saying that there will be some gaming expansion. But the level of that expansion, I think, has been what's been holding up. Is that is is that accurate? That is accurate, yeah. Um, that and whether or not they need additional revenue on top of that. But, um, yeah, so the gaming expansion was always going to be uh, legalization of Internet gaming. That was um, sort of an agreed-to component of the plan. The challenge was whether or not to legalize video gaming terminals, um, which is, you know, remote you know, sort of slot machine style games that would be installed in bars and taverns and anywhere else with a liquor license. That's something the House very strongly was pushing for, and that's something the Senate uh, didn't have the votes for and the governor didn't really support. And so that, uh, it didn't get anywhere. And so we heard that there had been a plan that had been sort of come to and sent to the governor um, between the House and Senate that instead of video game terminals or VGTs, um, it would do... um, 10 new, quote-unquote, like mini-casinos in the state that would be licensed from existing casinos and would be in places that were sort of more far-flung in the Commonwealth that don't already have casinos. So that was, you know, a component of the plan. We haven't seen official language for that or anything. Um, But, again, uh, we don't know. It's really difficult to know where they are on gaming right now. They've left it open that they might pass it today. They might have a bill. But... uh, you know, it's it's hard to tell. These mini casinos, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, part of the, the reason that the state is looking at this is that they would make money off of uh, the proceeds, obviously, from gambling, but uh, also the licenses for these mini casinos. Would this mean, like, uh, you know, I'm picturing a mini casino of a company getting the license and, you know, going in and building a whole new facility, maybe not as big, as many slot machines, as many tables as a full-blown casino. Is that a good way to look at it? Yeah. Um, in the first year, they did have some rough revenue projections for how much this would make, and it was more money in the first year because of licensing. So, yeah, it's definitely it's a recurring revenue source, but a lot of that revenue is going to be coming in as they're doing the licensing process. And, yeah, so it'll be a small facility. And I don't know exactly what this would look like because I'm sort of unfamiliar with the concept. But yeah, I've never heard mini there. casino before. Before this whole uh, budget thing, never yeah, heard that. The other word that they, yeah, the other word that they use for it is ancillary casino, which <laughs> sounds even more technical. <laughs> <laughs> An ancillary casino, right? that's, that's yeah, different yeah, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and it would be these would be like a, a separate tier of casinos too. We have like tiers one through three existing now, and these would be tier four. Yeah, I, I doubt they would be called, have mini casino in their name either, you know. Yeah, I don't know what they'd call them. <laughs> Smith's <laughs> mini casino. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just doesn't sound right some, somewhere along yeah. the line. Now, you know, a couple of the other things that you've been talking about, I, I, one that you didn't mention, and it always comes up, House Republicans push this uh, uh, more so than probably any other caucus, and that is liquor expansion. What about that yeah. in, in, in this bill? So liquor expansion has been a component of negotiations. Um, the House has sort of used that as a, a bargaining tool to say, well, if we don't get VGTs, we want X, Y, and Z of liquor. Um, they haven't had too much success with that because the Senate, again, has been and have been. This is not a new phenomenon. The Senate hasn't wanted to expand liquor to the extent that the House does. Governor Tom Wolf really does not support it, so it, it didn't get a whole lot of traction. But, yeah, I mean, the House has passed, like, six different liquor expansion bills. I believe it was five liquor expansion bills and a beer one. But uh, regardless, they have a lot of menus of options vis-a-vis liquor on the table, but, you know, I don't think anything's going to come of that. You know, earlier this week, uh, you reported, Katie, that uh, uh, some of uh, uh, the firms in on Wall Street were looking to uh, uh, maybe downgrade Pennsylvania as far as our credit rating goes. And because Pennsylvania was having trouble coming up with a budget and they didn't 
quite like uh, what was being suggested. And borrowing is one of those things. I was just interested whether, I mean, that hasn't actually occurred yet, but if the state was to borrow, uh, whether, you know, what we've been going through, whether interest rates would be impacted by it. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's up to the rating agencies, but we did. We got a very strongly worded letter from Standard & Poor's. I think it was last week. All the days have blurred together. Yeah, but, they um, are, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so Standard & Poor's sent out a letter basically saying that if Pennsylvania's budget's not truly balanced, and they, they qualified that, they said if it's balanced on gimmicks or one-time revenue sources, that we'd be looking at a credit downgrade, and I don't know when that would happen. But they did put us on their you know, credit watch where we were last year, and we got off quickly. Um, but they put us on their credit watch. Um, we already have among the lowest credit scores in the country, and this would bracket us down even more if, again, our credit were to be impacted. So um, not a good situation. And you're right. It would, if, if our credit is downgraded, it would raise interest rates. And if we're borrowing money in order to fill the budget, that's obviously not a good combination of events. Katie, you also did a story on, uh, you, you mentioned the tobacco fund, that's where they would borrow from. Uh, mm-hmm. The American Lung Association came out and said that if that uh, happened, that it actually would cost Pennsylvanians lives. They did say that, yes. Um, so the American Lung Association gets, I forget, the, it's somewhere, it's some sm- relatively small amount of money, but um, they get, it's like $15 million or so every year from this fund, and they use that to fund their programs. Um, so, yeah, if they were to borrow from this fund, the association is worried that there would be less revenue for these programs. And they did say, you know, if we you know, go down anymore, um, funding-wise, we're not going to be able to maintain the level of programming that we currently do. Now, I should say, you know, lots of states have had these settlements. Uh, initially, they were supposed to be earmarked for um, health-related costs. Pennsylvania has sort of stuck to that. 25% of it does go to the general fund, but the rest of it does go to health-related uh, expenses and programs. A lot of states didn't do that. A lot of states just have the money going right into their general fund. So we're sort of um, above the curve maybe on that. So um, it's just some context on where the money goes in different states. But, uh, yeah, there definitely is going to be pushback from health industries um, or health programs, I guess, mm-hmm. if this borrowing does take place. WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief Katie Meyer will be following uh, your stories the rest of the week. Katie, to see when we do get a budget, a final budget in place. Katie, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Scott. I wanted to mention that coming up on Thursday, we're going to be talking with a man who says that, you know, expanding gambling is not the way to go because it will take away from the existing casinos. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for 16 clinical trials. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart.